0: First Thessalonians chapter one, let's begin in verse one. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia, who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Archaea, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray together. Jesus, you said that if we continue in your word, we're your disciples indeed. What a privilege it is to be called your disciple, Lord. We pray, Lord, that as we explore this great book of 1 Thessalonians, we pray, Lord, that we as your disciples would learn everything that you have for us, We don't want to miss one jot or tittle. We don't want to miss one lesson. We don't want to miss one encouragement or or word of comfort or exhortation. We want what you want for our hearts and our lives. So Lord, we yield ourselves to you now. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit, that he would be our teacher. We thank you, Lord, that you use your word in part to make us more like Christ. We pray that you'd make us more like uh, Jesus every single day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It's always exciting to start a new book. At least it is for me. I get, I think I've said this before, and it's true. I get borderline giddy. Okay, I cross the line into giddiness. Let me just confess. I love starting a new book has a whole set, new set of adventures, a new set of things to discover and to learn and to glean. It's such a blessing to be able to do so together as a family, and we're very excited about what the Lord has in store for us because there's certain treasures and certain wealth that only come for those who continue in his word and are students of his word, and that's what he has produced in our hearts, a desire to be... uh, A learner That's what a disciple means. It means a learner. And we want to be learners of him and learn from him. And so he has said that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture. So we want to go through every verse. Now as we begin this book today, I want us to think about something. I want us to think about our level of growth after we became a new believer. I became a new believer, uh, actually, I'm celebrating 22 years this month. I became a new Christian in 1990. And I want us to think about where we were at three weeks after we received Christ. Where were you? Where were you spiritually? What were you thinking about? What were you grappling with? What things was the Lord working on I mean, right away? Usually we have this whole list of things we think the Lord should deal with people on, and we have this whole order of importance that usually God disregards completely. He has his own list, and that list is unique to each person. So I think about where I was at three weeks after coming to know the Lord, and, and then maybe, you know, another month after that or two at the most. And, and my life was radically changed at that point. It really was, and it started exponentially changing as I grew in my walk with him. But I want us to remember, each of us to remember where we were at when we first came to know the Lord, the first three weeks to maybe two months, because that's where this church was when Paul was writing to this beautiful church in Thessalonica. Paul had only spent about three weeks with them, and Timothy had a little bit more time with them after that. But that is amazing to think about. It's amazing to think how far God had brought them. Much of what we're going to be seeing today and and throughout the rest of this time when we're studying through this book is just recognizing what God had done in their life. What, had, what was God doing through their life? It was amazing. And, and they had such little uh, discipleship. You just think of how that could be possible. So that's one of the things we're going to see. So I want you to think about where you were at. And it's not to make you feel guilty or bad and like, well... You know, it really wasn't that far along then, and it's not to heap guilt or condemnation on us, but it's to give us confidence in what God can do in a life in a very short amount of time. Thessalonica was a, a, a city that was in, in Greece, and today it's called um, Salonica. It was the doorway to Macedonia. It was founded 315 B.C., and it was founded by King Cassander of Macedon. I know that means nothing to you, and you'll forget it once we leave here. But I have to say it so I can look halfway credible. Uh, I'm just kidding. But it was named after Alexander the Great's half-sister. And this man that founded it was married to her. And so he founded this city at this point in Paul's time. By the way, that bad joke was what Dave was referring to earlier. Um, and I just want to give props to him for that. Um, but that's not all that you'll have to endure. You know, there are other things you'll have to endure besides that. Um, getting back to Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonica, rather, it was about 200,000 in population at this time. So it was about the size of Modesto, um, if you're familiar with, with Modesto at all. And here Paul, he arrives there uh, in Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. He just arrived uh, from uh, Philippi. And he was uh, imprisoned there with Silas. You may remember when we went through the Book of Acts, or from your own reading, that Paul and Silas were imprisoned in Philippi, and they were uh, there in the you know midnight or so, and they were worshiping God. They were in stocks; their legs were spread out, and they're very uncomfortable. They'd already been beaten. I mean, we can minimize that real easily, but we shouldn't because it was very painful what they were going through. And they were singing to the Lord. And, and, and then, as it's been famously said, that God started tapping his foot to the, to the singing. And there was an, a, a, an earthquake. It wasn't just any earthquake, because typical earthquakes don't break chains off people's wrists and make doors open without causing harm to people. And so it was a supernatural earthquake there. The Philippian jailer you know, said, what must I do to be saved? He was going to take his life because... Be, Uh, allowing the prisoners to escape would mean, for sure, a death sentence for him. Paul knew it. He said, we're all here. It's okay. Don't take your life. And so this man received the Lord. His family received the Lord. And then they wanted Paul to leave. And Paul said, no, no, I'm a Roman citizen, and I was beaten. And I I want to have the authorities come and basically acknowledge what they've done. And in part, I believe he was doing that for the health of the church. that He knew he'd be leaving behind there. So in Philippi, it was the first church that was planted in Europe. It was the very first church. And Lydia was there, and Paul had found some women by the river because there wasn't ten male adult Jewish men because that would would require a, a synagogue to be built. So they met by the river, and that's where Paul met them and so forth. So there were some very significant conversions going on there. And then after they left... Paul and Silas, after they left, they traveled about 100 miles to Thessalonica. So Paul came to this city, and I want us to to turn to Acts 17. Hold your place here, and I want us to read Paul coming to Thessalonica as he founded this church. So hold your place here. Turn over to Acts chapter 17. Not too far to the left. Acts 17, and let's begin reading verse 1. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So this time there was a synagogue, unlike uh, in Philippi. Then Paul, verse 2, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, that's significant, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason, but she appreciated that, and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they had heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, in other words, they posted bail, uh, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were, that is, those in Berea were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. So they they commuted to bring persecution to Paul. Then immediately the, the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now you can turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So that was the planting of this church in Thessalonica. It's important to know the context here because Paul is coming fresh from getting beaten, fresh from getting imprisoned there and mistreated and sent off Prematurely, obviously, he wanted to stay there, in Philippi, and and he wanted to help this new church and so forth. And um, but he didn't have the luxury to do that, and so he was forced uh, away there and went to Berea. These these Jews had followed him to Berea, which wasn't very far away from from uh, uh, Philippi, and had stirred up this trouble. And then he was forced to leave again. After having fruit there in Berea, he had to leave, but he left. Uh, those behind, so that he, they could minister to this new church. I want you to understand that context and what kind of what's going on as we start uh, this incredible chapter here. As we begin the book, now I want you to know. First of all, begin in verse one uh, and and two. Uh, he basically gives a encouragement and his typical greeting. And it was cu- customary for those that are in that t- time to give a kind of set. The, the beginning of the letter with who's writing the letter because they were written with scrolls. So they, they couldn't just look at the end very easily. They had to let them know who was writing in the beginning so they wouldn't have to unroll this long scroll there. So he says, Paul, Silvanus, and that's uh, Silas's Roman name, Silvanus there, and Timothy. Now, Paul's the author. He's the one that's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he's saying uh, that I'm with these other men as well. And so he says, so he says, that's who's writing the letter, Paul, I'm with these men here. And it's important for us to know that, uh, but, you know, Paul's writing this book from Corinth because he went to Athens after Berea, and then what happened was he called for uh, Silas and Timothy to come, they came from Berea to him there, and then he sent uh, Timothy back to uh, um, uh, Thessalonica, and then he most likely sent uh, Silas to uh, Philippi for a time, and then they rejoined him back in Corinth, when he went to Corinth. And so uh, that's important for us to know, because he's going to mention that a little bit later about Timothy going to them in chapter 3 and everything. We need to know a little bit about uh, kind of what the progression of how they were moving around and ministering and so forth. So he says who he's writing this letter to, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to to see here that after uh, he says to the church of the Thessalonians, he says, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Anytime you see the word in before we see in Christ or before Christ or before God and so forth, when he says in Christ or in God, he's talking about our positional standing before God. And he's gonna mention election here before we're done. So he's talking about their positional standing. They are not only in Thessalonica, but they're also in God, spiritually speaking. They're in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord is Christ's title. Uh, Jesus is his name. Jehovah is salvation. Christ is his mission. It means the anointed one or the Messiah. So sometimes we think that it's like uh, as someone has said, Smokey the Bear, you know, his first, middle, and, and last name. But it's, you know, Lord Jesus Christ is not his first, middle, and last name. It's his title, his name, and his mission all into one. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. His customary greeting, we see it in all of Paul's letters. Uh, and he's saying that's a common greeting because the, the Greeks would say charis, that's grace in Greek. They would say grace to you. In other words, may God give you a better day than you deserve. And it's great to be able to say that to someone. May God give you a better day than you deserve. You should try that sometime. But also, that the Jewish greeting was, was shalom. So we kind of combine these together. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say this every time because the Holy Spirit put it in his word every time, and it's, and it's worth repeating. It doesn't say things by accident. That you can't experience the peace of God until you first experience the grace of God. And so you'll never see uh, the um Peace and grace to you from God our Father. It's always grace and peace. There are many people that are trying to experience the peace of God, but they do it on their own terms. They make up the means by which that happens, and they devise their own way in doing that. But they, they can't come to God with works, and that's the only other way to come to God. If you're not going to come to Him by God's grace, you're going to come to Him with your works, and thus, you're not going to have peace with him because that's not how you begin a relationship with him. You begin your relationship with him by receiving his grace in your life. His, that undeserved favor, that unmerited favor. And you receive that grace into your life and receive the free gift of salvation. Then you have peace with God. So very important that we see that in that particular order there. He says in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. And so he has this common uh, outline that he's working off of. He says who he's, who, who's writing it. He's saying who the recipient is. He greets them. And then now the thanksgiving. He says, we give thanks to God always for you, for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Notice he says, we give thanks. He's talking about his ministry team. It's not just Paul. He's talking about Silas and Timothy. We give thanks. We join hands. And we pray for you, Thessalonians. And we cry out to God for you. And we give thanks to to God for you. Notice he doesn't say, we give thanks to me for you. (laughs) Even though I'm the one that brought the gospel to you, I give thanks to God. Again, he was only with them for three weeks. He knows that what's happened in them could only happen by God and by the Holy Spirit. But and every time he thinks of them, which it hasn't been that long since he's left them. It's only been a month or two, three at the most, since he's been among them. And so he's remembering, he's thinking back to their faces and and what it was like to to be among them, even for the short time that he was with them. And he, he says, I thank God always, not some of the time, and he doesn't say, I give thanks to God for some of you. Wouldn't that be disappointing to read? <laughs> or have, have someone read in your presence, you know. I give thanks to God for some of you. Ugh, wonder who he's talking about. I knew, it wasn't, I knew he wasn't talking about me. I knew I'm, a, I'm that guy that has been such a pain in the neck to God. You know, and he says, I, I give thanks to God always for you all. For you all. Maybe some of us here need to be encouraged about how God sees you and how he loves you, and he loves everybody equally. He doesn't love us more because we're doing better in some capacity, whether it be spiritual or any other way. He is love. God is love. He cannot love you any more than he already does, and he can't love you any less than he already does. Anything that you could possibly do to try to get him to love you more would not do any good, and it's just like with our children. If they tried to get us to love them more, what would we say? What would we tell them? Stop it! You can't get me to love you anymore. I already love you as much as I possibly can. So all of that produces the end of verse two, <laughs> making mention of you in our prayers, and and I bet he prayed for him a lot. As 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 a leader, as a as a shepherd, and the, the concern that the Holy Spirit gives you for his people. Him, him knowing they've, they've only been with the Lord a, a short time and didn't have much exposure to, to really anything. I mean, in terms of, you couldn't give them a, a New Testament. You couldn't give them, here's the, you know, a gospel. You couldn't give them anything. You just, here you go. I got to go. I got to leave town. I know the Holy Spirit's going to take care of you. And he, and he did take care of them. And that's what we need to see. We can't miss what God can do in a short amount of time in his people. So I know he was praying for them because I know that he cared deeply about them and I know that he knows that they needed prayer. They needed prayer. He was trying to work his way back. In fact, in chapter three, he's going to say, we couldn't take it anymore. I had to send Timothy to you. You just couldn't take the thought of them receiving the persecution that they were going to be receiving without him in some way, in some capacity, imparting spiritual health to them. And so it was very important for him to, to say, we're, we've got your back, we're with you, we're standing with you, we're praying for you, and I want you to know that we do it always for you. That must have been an incredible comfort to them to, to know that, to know that Paul's praying for us. He's interceding for us, he hasn't forgotten about us, and he's praying for all of us, not just some of some of us. Incredibly thankful, I'm sure, that they uh, had had in their hearts, incredible thankfulness. Now notice in verse three and four, Paul lists what uh, he, he was thankful for, he says, Verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Now, it's interesting here. I don't know if you caught this, but faith, hope, and love are in verse 3. Did you see that? He says that we remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. This was about four years before he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where where he said that these abide, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So he's mentioning this years before the Spirit inspired him to write 1 Corinthians 13 and articulate what uh, supernatural agape love looks like. But he focuses on their work, their labor, and patience. That's what we need to focus on. It's not the faith, hope, and love. That's not what they were doing. They were doing something else. But what we see the faith, hope, and love come into play with is the motivation. That was the motivation for their work. That was the motivation for their labor. That was the motivation for their patience there. So you could read it this way. The work that came forth from their faith, the labor that came forth from their love, and the patience which came forth from their hope. Those things are natural byproducts, supernatural byproducts of having those virtues in our life. So the work of faith. They believed in Christ. They trusted in Christ for salvation. They were busy about the Lord's business. They were busy about spreading the gospel. Paul's going to get into that in a minute. They were busy about stepping out in faith. And all of that required work. And Paul's going to get into next, the next chapter what kind of men that they were among them in their midst, that they worked with their hands and they, they they weren't a burden upon them financially. They had it modeled before them, what it looked like to work in Paul and then these other two men, that, that, that there's a, a, a virtue in working hard for the things of the Lord. And it, it's a good question for all of us. Related to the things of the Lord, where is it that we're working? Where is it that we're uh, growing, and we're being stretched, and, and we're laboring. It actually means to work to the point of exhaustion there. And so Paul is saying, this is what I'm thankful for. I'm remembering without ceasing. That Because in verse 3, when it says without ceasing, it's not talking about they're not, the not ceasing isn't referring to the work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope. It's referring to his remembering, that I'm constantly remembering uh, what you guys were uh, about when I was among you. Remember, he wasn't there for very long. So here they were, brand new Christians. And sometimes we say that brand new Christians are Christians that have been Christians for, I've even heard it stretched all the way to 10 years. I don't know what the motivation behind that is. But, you know, sometimes it's two years, three years. What's a baby Christian? What's a brand new Christian? Well, I'm sure that they qualify here. Three weeks old, a couple months at the most. In, 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 the, in the Lord, and Paul is saying that I'm remembering without ceasing. I constantly think about how you were busy working and serving and giving your life away as a result of your faith. Very good um, exhortation for us. But he doesn't stop there. He says that the labor that comes as a result of love, that's the motivation behind what they were doing. So what is love? Love is is not just a feeling. Sometimes in our culture, especially in the context of marriage, unfortunately, we can hear these, it, it, it uh, explained this way. Well, it just was, you know, love is kind of elusive, and it just kind of disappears, and I have no control over it, and it's just this feeling, and once I don't have this feeling anymore, then now I guess I don't love you anymore. But the Bible teaches a very different definition of love. Agape love is when we give and we, we do action, And we do what's best for the other person, even at my own expense. So it's something that's volitional. It's something that I have control over. I can always choose to do what's best for another person, even at my own expense. So he's saying here, I'm remembering and being thankful that out of your motivation of love, you labored for one another. And you labored for the things of the kingdom. What a beautiful testimony. If we are exhausted in life, in doing anything. For sure, it should include uh, loving one another and doing what's right for another person. If you have children, if you're blessed to be able to have children, you know what it's like to be exhausted, especially as a new parent, and you're trying to do what's right, and and you're just exhausted doing what's right and doing what's best for the other person. So much of the time, they don't even appreciate it. They don't even know what you did. Until they become a parent of their own, and then it starts to dawn on them what that labor of of unconditional love was all about, and they see it. Now, of course, we can look at the great example of all these things is in the Lord Jesus, because he had the work of faith. He had and does have labor of love all the time. That's just who he is. And so what a great example for us to see that these things are supposed to be coming out of our lives. And we can't say that we haven't developed enough as believers because these believers already had it in their lives, coming out of their life at such a young spiritual age. It's very important for us to see that. But he continues and he says, Your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. And I believe this is talking about Uh, The the hope of of Christ coming back. He's going to get to the end of that, or he's going to get to that again at the end of this chapter. And at the end of every chapter in this book, all five chapters, ends with him speaking about the return of Christ or the rapture or the Lord coming. Every single one. So many of people have labeled this book kind of the, the book of end times or the book of uh, helping us understand about the Lord's return. And so it's important for us to see that. But that hope produces patience because we have to wait for him to come. We get really impatient, especially as this world gets worse and worse, especially as we go through incredible difficulty and trials and tribulations. We just want out. We just want to escape from this world. And God says that's supposed to produce patience in us, and it does. It produces patience, and it helps us to to be busy about his business, but at the same time, be looking up, be looking for his return. So all these things, the Apostle Paul says, without ceasing, I was thinking about these things, how you have demonstrated these things. But look at the end of verse 3. He says, in the sight of our God and Father, the most important person That has noticed these things has been God. And that's important for us to see. Because when we're working regarding our faith, we're working out our faith and we're living that out. When we're showing love sacrificially and we're laboring to the point of exhaustion in that. And we're waiting for him to come back, allowing that uh, work to, to have its full impact in our lives. Sometimes we're very much unappreciated. People don't see what we're doing or we're, we don't feel like people really notice and so forth. God notices. If no one else notices in this world, the end of verse 3 tells us God does. And that should be the only one that really matters in the grand scheme of things. It matters what he says about my life. And, he's, and Paul's encouraging them, I may not be in your presence. Timothy may not be in your presence anymore. Silas may not be in your presence anymore watching these things and seeing these things, but God sees it. And it must have been an incredible encouragement to them. He's not done being thankful. He says in verse 4, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Now, this is interesting because the word knowing there is in a tense that communicates something that occurred in the past, but the ramifications or the implications of what happened in the past continue into the present. So Paul, what he's saying there is he's saying, I know this because I was there. I know this because I saw it. I know it because I witnessed it. And it's blessing me today. It has implications today. It's blessing me. I'm thinking back of of how you were and how I I know you are right now. And it's incredibly encouraging to me because I know that you are beloved. You are loved. When someone says you're beloved, it means that you are loved. You're the object of someone's uh, love there. You're the object of God's love. You're the object of Paul's love. That's what he's trying to say. But he says also, your election by God. Now, Paul had to have a really good handle on the election of God related to these Thessalonians. Because here he is feeling kind of helpless. He can't directly impact their their Christian growth anymore. He's doing this letter in part for that purpose, of course. But physically, in their presence, he can't do that anymore. And so he has to have an incredible confidence that these believers have been elected. And if they've been elected, there's a lot of things that are true about their lives. If they've been elected, if they've been chosen by God, which they have, being Christians, that means that God's going to provide them everything that they need to be the believers that God has called them to be. And that was incredibly comforting to Paul, I'm sure, but especially to those believers because here they are, they're, they're going through this tribulation, as we're going to get to in a little bit. They're going through this persecution. And, and here they, they hear Paul tell them, your, your election is, is, is a reality and you're much loved. And that kept them going at that time because they're going through incredible difficulty. You know, the election, our election as believers is only ref- spoken about in the context of after you come to know the Lord. You never see God's election referred to or talked about in the context of unbelievers. The emphasis is always put on unbelievers to believe in the context of evangelism. You never hear anyone talk to an unbeliever in Scripture or read uh, an unbeliever being talked to about the Lord in the context of if they're one of the elect or not, if they're one of the chosen. It's always about their responsibility to believe. It's only after we come to know Christ that we learn that since we did believe, that we learn that we're elected. And so since God is extending that invitation out to all, he's willing that none should perish, but that all come to repentance, that that means that the invitation's open to all, but not all people take advantage of that. And and you say, well, what if I'm not one of the elect? What if I believe by accident? Okay, you're making things incredibly difficult for yourself. (laughs) Okay, just believe. Well, what if I'm not one of the elect? Well, believe and you'll know that you're one of the elect. What if I can't believe? You can believe, or else God wouldn't tell you to believe. He wouldn't put that responsibility on you, and thus he wouldn't hold people accountable at the great white throne judgment in Revelation for not believing. If, if man doesn't have the capacity to believe, he wouldn't put him on trial. What, what respectful judge or respectable judge puts someone on trial that has no capacity to have guilt because they didn't have an opportunity to choose? It's ridiculous. So he says, I want it to comfort you. That I know this, and you're beloved, you're much loved, and you're elected by God. And that was supposed to bring an incredible encouragement to them and to us. Verse 5 For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Now, he says, our gospel, he begins the verse with our gospel. That's kind of prideful. It looks like on the surface, someone might say, it's our gospel, Paul. You would later write in 1 Corinthians that this is the gospel that I delivered unto you that I also received. He received this gospel. That's not something he was taught by any man. It was, he was taught by God. He's not saying that it originated with him. He's saying that it's something that we carry. It's a stewardship. We're managing this uh, assignment as, as ambassadors of Christ. We're managing that. And our gospel didn't come to you in word only. Now, I want you to notice some repeating words there in verse 5. And it's the word in. He says, in word, in power, in the Holy Spirit, in much assurance. That's not by accident. He's making a very specific point. He could have said in word, power, Holy Spirit, much assurance. He's making a distinct uh, point that there are all these traits related to how they received the gospel. Now, back from my days of uh, before Calvary Chapel and so forth, I heard this verse quoted a lot. There was a lot of (laughs) meanings and interpretations poured into these verses. I mean, I, I couldn't even, in the time that we have, I couldn't go down the list of all the different ways I've heard these verses uh, interpreted. But I want you to know that none of them that I heard ever included the end of verse 5. And that's how you understand what he's talking about. Because he says, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. You can't disconnect the end of verse 5. He's saying to them that we communicated this gospel to you in a way that was in line with who we were among you. In fact, he's going to continue that in verse uh, 6 because he says, and you became followers of us. And then he continues it even on into chapter 2, talking about what manner of men we were among you. And he's building this case of how they were among them, how how, uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy were among them because it's bringing comfort to them and it's giving them credibility to say what they're saying to them at this time. So what Paul is saying is here, He's saying that we were the type of vessels that spoke the word to you. But not, we weren't just the type of vessels that just spoke and that's it. We were the kind of vessels that were also powerful in your midst. And we were also vessels that were in the Holy Spirit. We were led by the Holy Spirit. That's where they received their power as vessels. Was because of the Holy Spirit. Their whole entire mission was a result of the Holy Spirit. The only reason why they were in Europe in the first place is because the Holy Spirit gave Paul a vision. The whole entire mission was as a result of the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance was a result of who they were in Christ among these new believers. They assured them uh, supernaturally based on who they were in Christ and who they were called to be among them. So he's saying, we didn't just preach this word to you. We weren't just people that preached the word, and that was it. We just communicated uh, verbal communication to you. But we lived a certain way among you. We were dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We had power coming through our lives. We assured you of these things when we were in your midst. And that's why he could say in verse 6, And you became followers of us. And of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. So what's the lesson for us? The lesson for us is, is to be the men and women that God's called us to be in the context of sharing our faith and in the context of serving one another. It's not just about what we say with our mouth. It's not just about our theological positions. It's about being the kingdom of God in our midst to having the kingdom of God function through our lives in one another's lives, to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes he isn't leading our conversations and he is leading what we're saying to one another in ways that we have no idea. You ever said that to someone where you're you're just communicating and you're sharing something and you don't know where this is coming from? <laughs> like, I don't know where I'm getting this stuff. That's the Holy Spirit leading your speech. He's making, you know... He's establishing our thoughts as we're speaking, and we're being an extension of the Holy Spirit in someone's life, and it's powerful, and it's supernatural there, and he's saying, you know what kind of men we were among you, and we had this dynamic going on in our lives. You know, we think about what qualifies people for ministry, whether it be leaders or or the rest of us that are in ministry, because we're all in the ministry, and not one part of that is more important than another. What qualifies us is that the Holy Spirit has called us to do something. We, if we have been called to do it, that means he's going to give us everything that we need to do that. And so because of that, we're serving out of the right heart. We're serving out of uh, the spirit-directed opportunities that he presents to us. And there's no explanation for it. See, I think we've gotten too smart for our, our can I say britches? Do we still say that? We've gotten too smart for our britches in ministry. We figured it out. We, we've thought, well, if we do all these things, then everything will just work like clockwork. And God's all for having things not, you know, be confusing and, you know, out of order and so forth. But we're, we're trusting in so many different models that people have brought into the church. Here you have this church that is brand new. They're baby Christians. They have no leadership there to, to, to help them. They have no New Testament that we're aware of. And, and here they are bearing beautiful fruit. And Paul is saying that this happened in in part because of how we were among you. And they're going to replicate this, as we're going to see in a moment. He says in verse 9, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Did I skip verse 8? I think I did. Yeah, let's go back to verse 8. It's always helpful. I'm glad I caught that. I'm, I'm surprised I did. Verse 8. Let's go backwards. For from you, the word of the Lord is sounded forth, not only in Macedonia um, and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Now, he's already said in verse 7 that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. So Paul's saying that we were a certain way among you of the Holy Spirit and dependent upon him and in power. And then he said, you became, now you followed us. You followed our example. Notice he says in verse 6, I know we're going backwards. We really are going to make it to 10, going backwards. He says, you became followers of us and the Lord. Notice he doesn't say followers of the Lord and us. You'd think that he'd put it in that order, but he doesn't. They were the human instruments that were being used by the Lord in in, uh, their lives. And he's saying, you received this in much affliction. We had uh, much affliction coming in because of Philippi. We had much affliction coming in because of that. But you have much much affliction. But God gave you joy of the, the Holy Spirit there. And then you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia. And then he says, for from you, the word of the Lord is sounded forth. Now That that word there means like to reverberate. So if you reverberate something and you say something and it kind of echoes and carries along, that's kind of the word picture here. And he's saying everybody, not just those in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. What kind of faith would it be? That Paul would be speaking about that he wouldn 't have to say anything he wouldn 't have to say anything about the health of this church because they already know it. These other places already have heard about the health of this church because of what they were doing and how they were serving and how they were progressing and remember they were baby Christians, amazing every church has a reputation every every Christian has a reputation, but collectively every church has. Some kind of reputation, and my prayer would be that those that uh, hear about Calvary Chapel, Mantica would hear a great repu- would have a great reputation would hear that we 're interested in the things of the Lord and we 're wanting to serve the lord we 're wanting to learn his word we 're wanting to give our lives away we 're wanting to preach the gospel, and so forth, so that no one would have to say anything try to say anything good about us, they would just already have heard about that, and we have a reputation. Uh, regarding prayer. I know that we get prayer requests from all over the world because they've heard about us taking prayer seriously. That's that's a great reputation to have. I mean, I know that we can continue to grow in that. So Paul says, so we don't even have to say one word, and, and he continues in verse 9. I think we're finally there for real. <laughs> for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. Now, what he's talking about is how they were receptive to their entry. In other words, how everybody has heard how receptive the Thessalonians were when the team first came to Thessalonia, that we had to, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, that's a great definition of repentance right there, because repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of direction. And that's exactly what he says there in verse 9. He says, And how you turned to God from idols. Most of this church in Thessalonica were were Gentiles in their background. There were a few Jews, but most of them had their background because he did go in the synagogue for three weeks. But a lot of them were were, uh, Gentiles there. And he said, and you turned to serve the living and true God. And that's in contrast to idols who, who are dead and false. So he says everybody's heard that you received us when we came, and everyone's heard that you turned from idols, and you turned to the true and the living God. They had a great, great reputation. And verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So turning, serving, and waiting. Great progression, great description of of the Christian life, that we turn to God when we first get saved, Then we serve him as we wait for him to come. And as we wait for him, we're waiting for Jesus to come to give us our reward. Because there's going to be a uh, reward ceremony called the Bema seat or the Judgment seat of Christ. Where each one of us is rewarded and, and we also give an account for our lives and so forth. Corinthians talks about this. And that we will be blessed with rewards based on our motivation behind what we did because we can do things for all kinds of motivations. But he's saying here to these believers, you've had great motivation. You've had the motivation of love. You had the motivation of faith. You've had the motivation of, of the Lord coming back. And so he wants to encourage them there. But he says, as you're doing that, you need to recognize that Jesus came. He rose from the dead and, and he's going to come because he delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, people debate about what this wrath is referring to. It, it for sure means hell, of course, but I think it's probably also talking about, in the context of end times, talking about the wrath that's going to come on this uh, earth, this tribulation that's going to come on the whole world, as, as Jesus referred to, to one of the churches in the book of Revelation. And and they're going to get to in chapter fourteen or chapter four rather about the rapture. He's going to talk about the rapture. He's going to talk about uh, the rapture and the end times and so forth and the coming of Christ at the end of every chapter, as I as I uh, spoke of. And as we look at the, the the Christ coming back and the rapture of the church, that does a work in us. It does a very needed work in us. 1 John chapter three verses two and three tells us this. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him him purifies himself just as he is pure. So we turn from our idolatry we come to know Christ, we serve Christ, and then we serve Him faithfully and consistently and spirit directed and, and spirit empowered as we wait to have Him come. And when He comes, we'll receive our new bodies with Him if we're alive at that. Well, either way, the, the dead in Christ shall rise first. So everyone's going to get their glorified bodies at that time, and we're going to be with Him in His presence. And knowing that that could happen at any moment produces. A, a holy effect in our lives. It purifies us. It keeps us pure because we want to be found being faithful to him when he comes. You may remember growing up and your parents are gone or whatever and you and your, maybe you had siblings and you're there and you're, you're doing stuff that you shouldn't do because the parents aren't there and they, they come home suddenly and you get caught doing, so you don't want that to happen spiritually, obviously. We want to be serving the Lord. We want to be blessing his heart, be, being busy about his business when he comes so he finds us uh, being the people that he's called us to be now as I close I just want to encourage us today again this church three weeks to two weeks two months rather old in the Lord somewhere in there brand new Christians without so much that we have we have our entire Genesis to Revelation some of us have multiple copies in our homes, we have no persecution compared to what they were dealing with in their lives. We have two thousand years almost of great examples of the faith, and we have all the apostles past, you know, being faithful to the end that they didn't have at this point. This is like fifty-one A.D., and this is probably Paul's first epistles, uh, second, first or second epistle, which it's either between Galatians and First Thessalonians, very early in his in his public. Uh, you know, in his ministry and his missionary journeys, there on a second missionary journey. So here, this church has virtually nothing that we have, but they have the Holy Spirit. They have a calling from God. They don't have all the technology that we have, and they're not at any disadvantage. Any church would love to have the testimony <laughs> that, that that this church has. We would love for the Lord to say the things He says. Uh, to this church about Calvary Chapel, Manteca. Any church would love to hear that from the Lord. And they didn't have anything but the Lord. So the Lord plus, plus nobody is a majority. And we don't, we're not worse off because we don't have all the, giz, the gizmos and the gadgets and all those things have their place. God can lead us to have those things. I'm not against any of that but to the neglect of the leading and empowering of the Holy Spirit, to be the kind of people that God's called us to be. The same type of people that this team was to this church of Thessalonica, to be empowered by the Lord, to be led by the Holy Spirit, to, to communicate assurance of the things of the Lord in people's lives, to have the word of the gospel on their lips, to be communicating those things. We need to be ready for that at any moment so that God can encourage other churches because we forget that God's encouraging other churches by what they hear from other churches that they know of. And so the body of Christ affects the rest of the body of Christ. Very important for us to see. He's going to continue along these lines of being a great example. We'll get into those next week. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for beginning such a great work in us. Thank you, Jesus, that when you begin something in us, Lord, you do your part and you, you finish it. We thank you for that. I pray that you bring encouragement to us, help us. Help us to live the life that you've called us to live. Help us to be an influence in people's lives. Help us, Lord, to be ambassadors for you wherever you've placed us in this world. Help us to, to take seriously the Great Commission. Lord, all of us here can grow in that. I pray, Lord, we be busy about your business. Help us to know the opportunities you put before us and be faithful to those opportunities. Thank you, Lord, for all the encouragement, exhortation, and challenge that this, these verses represent to us, Lord. We want to be like you. We want to grow in our walk with you. And We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.